Welcome to the most interesting people in higher education. I'm Lee Bradshaw, and this is a Noodle production. I've spent my entire career collaborating with some of the most influential campus leaders. Together, we've transformed higher ed. In this series, I'll take you on never-heard-before journeys from the narrative arcs of the people evolving some of the most respected institutions in the world. You'll get an insider perspective from the mission-driven administrators, influential professors, devoted researchers, and others that are part of the highly interesting cadre of people transforming higher ed. Welcome to the show. I am thrilled to get this podcast out into the wild. We've been working on it here at Noodle behind the scenes for a while. We have a dozen folks already lined up. Uh, You're going to love hearing from them. Our journey starts with the dean of the number one physical therapy school in the country, Tony DeLito. He's the dean up in Pittsburgh of the School of Health and Rehab Sciences. That's where our journey is going to begin. Where his journey began is a little unexpected. And from 72 to 75, I went uh, mostly on the railroad. Um, I became a, I started out as a locomotive fireman and became a locomotive engineer, the guy that drives the trains, right? And of course, we talked about higher ed and some of Tony's lessons that he learned from his mentor. And he would stress over and over again that the true academic has, a th- uh, you know, lives on that three-legged stool. Uh, they teach and they do research and then they perform, you know, provide a service which includes clinical care and you have to sort of balance those three things. And this show has the word interesting in it for a reason. As a cyclist myself, I often see Tony's updates on Strava, the social network for endurance sports. But it turns out Tony is an avid ballroom dancer too. We were in the studio one time and she looked at the schedule, the, the, the dance instructor schedule, and she saw my name down. All these stories and more. Now on to my interview with Tony. Welcome, Tony Delito. I wanted to I wanted to start this podcast out with one of the most interesting people that I know in higher ed, and then we're going to go around and see how many stories we can find as unique as yours. Uh, I'm sure they're out there, but we uh, we have a tall order uh, to uh, to fulfill. I meet with a lot of folks in higher ed and leaders in higher ed, and I've I've never shared this with you. Every single person I've spoken to about you at other universities or at yours holds you in high regard. And I've never, I've never met somebody that bats a thousand that way, and that's rare. And so I just wanted to share that before we get in. You got your bachelor's at SUNY, and then you went on to wash you for your master's and your doctorate in physical therapy. You're a dean of a number one ranked college, a board member within the NIH, a researcher, an educator, a student, an athlete. And I'm told by your friends, a pretty good ballroom dancer. And as a doctor, you're used to talking about everybody but you. With your permission, I would like to talk about you today, Tony Delito. You have my permission. <laughs> Great. Welcome to the show. Um, Thanks. It's a heck of an introduction. How would you introduce yourself if I wasn't the one doing it for you? Oh, um, that's a great question. I think I would um, introduce myself as uh, a person who is, first and foremost, a physical therapist. Uh, I, that's a, such an important part of my life that I, I, I like to make sure that people know that right up front, uh, who still practices physical therapy. And then all of the other things that I do, uh, for the most part, are things I've picked up on, you know, from that career. Um, but so, so I'm, you know, by profession, a physical therapist. I think, you know, some of the other things that people, I like people to know about from, from my perspective is, uh, I've, I've um, 
for the most part, tried to, I, I, I went into academics for a good reason. Um, it it, it uh, allowed me to, to sleep at night. Everything else I was doing, you know, with regard to, uh, to, to things were, were it didn't, weren't as fulfilling as that. So I'm an academician, physical therapist. Uh, yeah, I, I do a little bit of ballroom dancing. There's a story behind that, but uh, uh, I'll, I'll suffice to say that's the probably the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life and continues to be the most difficult thing I've, I've, I've ever done. And um, hopefully these, you know, if you, if you get down to it, you know, one of the things that I strive for or strive to do is, you know, create environments that people can really excel. Uh, that, that, that is probably what I, whenever I get into a situation where, especially in leadership positions, it, I find the best path to success is to make sure everybody around me can be successful. I get the, I get the sense that those that I've met that have worked with you directly find that to be an easier way to succeed, right? Being around you seems to, to catapult people into places that they didn't, uh, didn't expect themselves. So I, through the looking glass, I have to agree that, that's, uh, that, you're, that you're doing it right. Let's go back in time. Sure. You're, you're, you're not a dean anymore. You're, you're a kid. Uh, and you have no idea you're going to be a dean. You don't know what the path looks like. Let's start there. Tell me a little bit about your journey and how you got here, because I have a feeling it's pretty interesting. Well, how far back do you want to go? I guess I'll start high school. Um, my high school years were uh, one of, um, uh, you know, very non-caring, um, non-serious, I guess is a, a good way to put it. And uh, to a point where when I became a senior and I realized that I was in the the lowest part of the, the the bottom fourth of my of my graduating class, I, I you know I, I I got a little bit serious in my senior year, but wasn't there weren't really any prospects for college, and I just went to work. You know, back in 1972, um, there were a lot of options for mm -hmm. people like myself. Mm -hmm. I spent a little time working for General Motors. I spent a little bit, you know, on, on an assembly line, and uh, spent a little bit of time, um, a lot of more time working on the railroad and. Uh, and from 72 to 75, I went uh, mostly on the railroad. Um, I became a, I started out as a locomotive fireman and became a locomotive engineer, the guy that drives the trains, right? And- Jit firemen, that's, that's the people actually putting the coal into the engine. Yeah. Into the, into the combustible area of the engine. I'm, I'm not sure what the terminology is. So you were actually shoveling coal. Well, uh, it, it, they were those people. Um, you know, the, the the fireman's position originally was in the old steam locomotive days. They were they were shoveling coal and keeping the boiler yeah. Yeah. going. Um, but they also, at that time, that was the way they trained people to become engineers. So the fireman and the engineer worked side by side. So when the when the fireman wasn't shoveling coal, he was learning how to be an engineer. He was, so he was like an apprentice. And then it was a it was a uh, a seniority sort of thing. And when their time came up, they had to be they had to pass a qualifying exam, become a locomotive engineer. The the apprenticeships always stayed in place, but um, but when they went to diesel uh, from from steam engine to diesel electric, um, there was no need to shovel coal anymore. But so so the apprenticeship stayed in place, and that's how they trained people to be locomotive engineers. And and at the time in the 1970s. Uh, the, the railroads hired in spurts and, and shortly after World War II, they hired a whole bunch of people to be 
locomotive engineers. And it just so happened around 1972 to 75, they were all going to be retiring. And so they, they went out and found people like me and put them on a crash course to become locomotive engineers. And I was one of those people. Yeah. Ready, willing, and able. Yes. Yes. And so your, your, your background starts with trains. How long were you involved in the railroad? For, for um, yeah, so so from seventy two to about seventy five, I was you know doing this job and uh, became a promoted engineman, uh, and then um, the oil crisis hit. Uh, we had a huge oil crisis in this country. The, the economy really tanked, um, and for the most part, we were uh, I, w- I, w- I was without work. And the railroad had invested a lot of money to get me trained. They didn't want to just lay me off, so they kept me kept us kept us on their job, but um, there was really nothing. There was no freight moving. And I was, I had a lot of time to think and a lot of time to sort of, you know, wonder about things. And here I am this 21 year old and I'm, uh, you know, uh, had gone to community colleges, sort of built my track record up a little bit better than my high school record. And I um, decided to, um, I'd also uh, gotten introduced to the health field from an injury that I had and um, made friends with a chiropractor and uh, who actually treated my back and we played tennis together and he was pushing chiropractic on me. And I, when I investigated it a little bit, I realized that chiropractic schools were colleges that, are, that were just not real colleges. They were sort of their own independent mm-hmm. colleges. And I wanted to be more, I, I was looking for something more traditional and physical therapy was, and they were, they were in the state schools and, uh, and it looked kind of similar to chiropractic. So I decided to apply to uh, the University of Buffalo as a, as a freshman and, uh, and got in. And, um, uh, and, I, and I was able to hang on to the railroad job because there were, they, they didn't mind me being away because there was no work to be done. And, uh, and I, and I uh, started as a freshman at the University of Buffalo uh, in, in 1975. And I would come home on Thanksgiving break and Christmas break and and uh, and work as a as a as this uh, as a as an extra man on a list and then go back to school when I was finished and you know when the when the break was over with and I did that I, I did that for uh, a year and a half I did that all the way through the following summer and then I I left I left the railroad completely and I trained at the University of Buffalo and graduated in 1979 with my physical therapy degree. Interesting and so. Did you know at that moment that's your trajectory was going to be a terminal degree in physical therapy and you wanted to go all the way or was it were you just so interested it kept you along the path? Yeah, that's that's you know I I um being you know having I you know I wasn't an 18 year old freshman you know I was a more I was a 21 year old freshman and so I had done a lot of that investigating that a lot of 18 year olds do you know and switching majors and stuff so that once I once I got into the major of physical therapy, I was pretty convinced that that's, that's what it was I wanted to do. And then once I started doing you know, clinical work in that area, I became more and more and more convinced. The other thing that happened to me when I was an uh, undergraduate was I had a, there was a, cor- a few courses that I took and I got the, the research bug. I had a mentor at the time uh, at the University of Buffalo um, who introduced me to research and um, I was able to you know, balance getting some research projects done, which no other student did, you know, in my, in my class, you know, very few others did. And then I was, you know, I I was, and and at the same time, I excelled on the clinical side. And when I graduated, 
the this this mentor who was the chair at the University of Buffalo became the chair at Washington University in St. Louis. He took the job there, mm. and he asked me if I wanted to go out there. Uh, when I was a senior, he you know he offered me the job in St. Louis, and uh, I had never really been further west than Buffalo, New York, at the time. And in fact, when he said Washington University, I was sort of envisioning the state of Washington. Um, and then he said Washington University in St. Louis. You know, I had to yeah. I had to go look that up. You know, there weren't at the, that time there was no internet. You actually had to open a book and look it up. You know, and um, and I didn't realize it was as prestigious a school as it was, and uh, and it was just a phenomenal opportunity. Um, so I took him up on it, obviously, and uh, and so I graduated in May, and I was in St. Louis in in July, and started my position there. That was a com combination, a clinical position, and and I did some teaching. And then over time, I became, you know, more more balanced toward uh, the academic side than the clinical side. Um, so I, you know, probably started out eighty percent in the clinic and 20% teaching it probably that, that, that role sort of reversed itself through my years uh, in St. Louis. And that's where I also got my, my graduate degrees, uh, my, my master's degree and my PhD. Are they hung up on your office wall? I have to ask. Yeah. Yeah, they are. They yeah. are all, all three of them. All you're, three of them. You're, you're a humble guy. And so I, I needed to make sure you were, were at least uh, representing the degrees in your, on your wall. Well, good. Okay. So now we're, we're educated, we're practicing, we're moving towards a research and an academic lens. How did you get to Pittsburgh and why, uh, why that city? So, so I, um, you know, once I realized uh, my, my first five years in St. Louis were, you know, from 1979 to 84, as I said, I was, I was, I was very happy practicing, but I was also, you know, got that research bug and I was also mm -hmm. teaching quite a bit. And, and I had this very nice position where I had, I straddled the fence between being on academic and being on the clinical side. But, you know, that was no, there wasn't a real good future in that sort of, you know, you're almost like, you're almost like the utility infielder. You go into the clinic when they need the clinical help, you go in the classroom and right. when they teach right. and, and research, I wasn't having much time at all to get research done. And I learned from my mentor that, you know, you have to make a decision here. You either go into the clinic and you know, practice in the clinic and forget about this academic stuff, or you come to academia and you have to sort of leave the clinic quite a ways, and then you have to get the pedigree, you know, which is the advanced degrees, the masters and the PhD, and 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 build a more comprehensive academic career where you're doing teaching, you're doing research, and you're doing some service and 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 pre and clinical work. So I, I, I the the really big decision came the you know you, sometimes you're. People can tell you you need to make a decision, but but circumstances many times drive your decision. And what drove my decision was uh, a clinical opportunity that was really a, a phenomenal opportunity. It was an opportunity to open a private practice. To give you an idea of what an opportunity this was, if I fast forward from the time I was offered the position to the time that that practice sold, that practice sold for about $18 million. <laughs> So yeah, yeah. So okay. so it was a it was a great opportunity, but at that point in time, I, that forced my hand. I had to either, you know, if I if I decided to run that practice and build that practice, I had to leave academics, and I I just didn't want to do that. And um, and that's when I decided that was the point. The decision point there was: do I go to that practice or do I uh, get a PhD? <laughs> and so I. <laughs> 
I decided on the latter, obviously, and uh, and someone else had that opportunity in the practice, and that's when you know that's that practice built up very quickly and, and uh, sold in the late eight and the mid eighties. You've given a nod to your mentor a couple times. That's that's really interesting to learn. I'm going to go out on a, an assumption ledge here. Is there something to the fact that you've now educated so many practitioners and so many physical therapists and so many health and rehab science students? Did you learn that? Did you learn what that experience should be like from that relationship you have with your mentor? And now you've replicated it and scaled it. Is there something there that, that I'm picking up on? Yeah, there's no question. Um, he was a, uh, his name was Steve Rose, and he had a profound influence in my life. I mean, he was, first off, he was the person that asked me to go from the University of Buffalo and follow him to St. Right. Louis. And you followed him. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I never could figure out why. You know, I, I mentioned earlier that in high school, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't a star student. In college, I wasn't a star student either. I, I had a very, you know, uh, I'd say not, not, the, it, it, not a model attitude. Um, I, I put my time and effort into things I like to do. And, and in courses I didn't like, I was very happy with C's. And, and, and that was, that, was my, that was my, you know, undergraduate career. Just, and, and so I wasn't a star pupil in the class when we graduated. So I was shocked that he asked me to, to come to St. Louis with him. And I think what it, what it probably boiled down to was he appreciated the other, the other things I brought to the table. I was, I was a more mature student, you know, being three years older than most of my classmates. Uh, the, the work experience I had, I, I, you know, brought a little bit of a different uh, attitude than, than most of the other students. We used to, I used to call them um, on-timers. <laughs> you know, they were on time. They graduated on time from high school. They went right to college and then they graduated on time. There were all these 21-year-old graduates, you know, 22-year-old yeah, graduates yeah. from college. And I was 25 and it doesn't sound like it's that big of a difference, but, but think about it from the time you were 22 to the time you're 25, that's a profound difference. You know, that, that's that three years of real life experience you get with yourself. And, and I, I think I was different. And I think that's probably some of the, those were probably some of the things that stuck out. Plus there weren't a whole lot of people like myself, uh, you know, in my, there weren't a whole lot of my classmates who really liked doing research and liked teaching. They all wanted to just get in the clinic, you know, and treat their patients, you know, and, uh, and, 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 Certainly, there wasn't a monetary gain. Uh, I remember, you know, my first job. Uh, of course, I interviewed for clinical jobs, and uh, and the difference in pay was was fifty, sixty percent. You know, I mean, uh, you know, and 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 at that time, you know, uh, it it didn't mean that much to me. But I can understand if you know if if you were, you know, if 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 you're in debt or you wanted to start a life and everything else, that you know that that's a big difference in a starting pay. But I was single, and um, and to me it was a it was a great thing. He he, um, you know, led by example, taught me what academics was, academia, you know, the 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 academia. What people mostly think of academia, the first thing that comes to our mind is you're going to be a teacher, and he would stress over and over again that the true academic has a th uh, you know lives on that three-legged stool. Uh, they teach and they do research and then they perform, you know, provide a service, which includes clinical care. And you have to sort of balance those three things and build your portfolio under all three of those, those, those areas, if you were going to be a true academic. And, uh, and, that, and he, and that was mentored in me from day one. Um, and I think that's what made me highly competitive 
the rest of my life for, for, for academic jobs was the fact that I could bring more to the table than just be a school teacher. Interesting. Speaking of competitive, are you, would you find, would you consider yourself a competitive person? Oh, uh, short answer. Yes. <laughs> there's no, there's no question in my mind. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm reminded of that, uh, those two ships passing and the little saying on the bottom that says, ah, your majesty, there is no second. <laughs> right. um, yeah, that, that, that does describe me quite a bit. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about you and your wife. I know that you, ball, you go to ballroom classes together, dancing classes together. Uh, I know that um, everybody recognizes you guys as a, as a great couple. Why do they say that? What, what do I not know about how you met and how you've you know, formed a great marriage? I know that's probably not the question you expected, but as a, as a recently married man myself, I, you know, maybe this, is, this question's personal. No, it, it, it's, I'm, I'm happy, to, happy to expound. Um, the, probably the, uh, we have a lot in common, um, not just the, you know, I told you about my delayed entry into education. My wife had a delayed entry into education too. Um, the reason for her delayed entry was, you know, at, at 18 years old, she was a single parent. Mm. So, um, and, you know, where I was working, doing my, my role of working, you know, the, the railroad jobs and things like that, she was raising a child and working at the Federal Reserve Bank and doing, doing other, you know, doing jobs like that. And uh, her, her uh, entry into physical therapy almost paralleled mine. She was one year later than I was. Uh, so she started at, you know, at 22 instead of, you know, inst instead of 21 years old. And, and she happened to be the year behind me at the University of Buffalo, but we never knew each other in Buffalo. But she also knew the same mentor that I knew, and he offered her a job also <laughs> in right. St. Louis. So a year later, she moved to St. Louis. And her and my wife and I uh, were assigned to teach a course together. We taught the lab of, of a course together and we got to know each other pretty well, but not in any sort of dating sense. Um, in fact, I, I always, we joke with everybody. I, I used to ba actually babysit for her when she went out on dates. That was, <laughs> so, so, um, but and then, um, yeah. But yeah. At, a certain, at a certain point, you, uh, you had to step in. You had to make yeah. them do because you're done. You're yeah. done doing the dates. Yeah, and so at a, at, it, it happened. Um, uh, yeah, it, it did happen um, that that uh, that times changed and life changed a little bit, and um, and we were um, uh, we were married in '82, 1982, and both of us were. We, you know, we had sort of made plans where you know she was she lived with me that whole entire time when I was trying to make this decision about. Do I do do I jump into the clinic and go into the clinic, or do I do I stay uh, on this course in academia and get a PhD? And of course, she reminds me every day about that clinic that sold for eighteen million dollars. That 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 that, that uh, opportunity that I passed up, but but at the same time, uh, you know, was totally behind the, the the idea of me going to to get a PhD. And a plan was for me to get my PhD and then for her to get her PhD after me because she was you know, very similar interests. Wanted, wanted, she was a train, trained as a physical therapist, didn't have, much of the, didn't, have, didn't have much of the desire to stay clinically involved as I did, hmm. but very much of a desire in the research and the teaching world you know, to stay involved. So uh, I finished my, 
my uh, PhD in 1990, and our plan was that she would start her PhD after that. And then it was it was right just before the time I'd finished my PhD that she was diagnosed with a with a chronic disease that really precluded her going through the rigor of a PhD. We we both decided that wouldn't be a good thing to do. And on the other thing, and you asked about this before, the other, you know, how did I end up in Pittsburgh? Well, uh, we were in St. Louis working for a very prestigious institution that was flush with money and we were able to do whatever we wanted to do. And one would say, okay, so why would you ever leave? You know, well, St. Louis also has a oppressively hot climate that wasn't at all good for my wife's chronic disorder. Mm. Yeah. And, um, uh, and we were looking for a, temp- a climate a little more temperate. So we, 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 yeah, my wife's criteria was really simple, further north and further east. (laughs) And that's, and that's how, and uh, the opportunity in Pittsburgh came up. It, you know, I looked at it as a hugely challenging opportunity and and very risky. You know, uh, my wife looked at it as, you know, I don't care what it is, it's necessary. And we're going to, in fact, I remember after my second interview, we got on a plane and uh, my wife's comment to me was, well, "I'm going. I don't know about you." So, so, we, so that was uh, where that that sort of pushed my decision. And uh, yeah, and and um, we ended up moving here in 1991. I was uh, very. I had a lot of trepidation about this job, though. Here in Pittsburgh, I remember telling my wife distinctly, uh, "Buy a house we could sell fast because I'm not sure about this job." And uh, well, we're still in the same house. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, that was 91, so it's been. A yeah. couple of years since you got <laughs> yeah. stuck around. Okay, so the competitive part. Well, first, before actually, I just missed something. Your mentor was also your matchmaker. It just, it just hit it's me. It's pretty much. I had. That's how it turned out. I wanted to go on to the next topic, but I, I'm realizing <laughs> this: the same gentleman that helped you into your career helped you find your wife, and I, that's that's pretty special. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Happen, think. Talk to me about how you. Uh, you know, when you're when you're in a deanship, you're probably not thinking competition all the time. Uh, but I know that you're fairly active, uh, and you're you're probably doing some things outdoors as much as possible. Talk to me a little bit about what you do in your free time, uh, and what what your interests are, other than commanding a, a top university in the United States. Uh, cycling is probably one of my cycling's been my savior. Uh, I, I would have to tell you that. Um, mm-hmm. I. Shortly after moving to Pittsburgh, my father, um, my father had a, a series of, Ill, of illnesses that one right after the other. He was your sort of quintessential guy who never took a day off from work and worked all the way up until you know he was about 66 or 67. And then from that time forward, he was just barraged with one problem after the other, largely because he, he, he never really took care of his health very well. So he's a little overweight. He was a type two diabetic. He was a hard driving guy who, uh, you know, just didn't take care of himself very much. And um, uh, and he passed away in 1991, 92, uh, 91, I'm sorry. And um, I saw myself at that point in time, pretty much going down that same path. You know, I'm, I'm five foot eight and there's no way you can put 200 pounds on my frame without me looking like um, I'm, I'm or, you know, obese. And I was headed in that direction, clearly. And in St. Louis, I did a little running. Um, but when I tried to do that here in Pittsburgh, um, running, running is not an aerobic activity here because of all the hills. You're, you're right. invariably coming up to a hill and, 
and uh, and in you know my body was you know not was kind of breaking down a little bit you know and uh, and I discovered cycling. Um, there was a a group out here that you know we call ourselves the Mount Lebanon Cycling and Caffeine Club, and um, very inviting group of guys. And uh, I started riding with them in the mid 1990s, and um, and now I, I you know I put in about four or five thousand miles a year minimum. Sometimes I'm up to eight or nine thousand, hmm. and uh, it's all road cycling, and and uh, try to get out two three times a week and. And ride pretty hard, uh, you know. Usually, you know, in my younger days, I was a lot faster and a lot, you know, I could keep up with the with what I would call the A group and the group. And the, but now I'm more or less trying really hard to stay in the low end of the B group, and most of the time I'm in the C group. Uh, but but still, I'm out, and uh, it's a it, it it's how I get my activity. And then, of course, you know, I would be. I don't know how long our marriage would last if all I did was cycle and work. So we we've tried to. My wife and I were always on this what seemed to be a never-ending battle to try to find something we could do together right right we tried golf and um and like wallpapering that was not really good for our marriage um uh it it just seemed as though you know whatever <laughs> whatever we were trying to do we were we 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 you know it was it, we were lucky that we were so frustrated with one another that we stopped doing it and then we, it, the frustration with each other stopped because we stopped doing whatever it was we tried to do together and um and i we bought a tandem we have a tandem bicycle but but unfortunately we can't get out on that very often and when my son left for my youngest son left for college in uh, 2000 my wife signed us up for ballroom dance lessons now she had done this before she 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 loves to dance and she's a very good dancer. And I didn't even dance at our wedding. I mean, I, I cannot, I, I mean, really, literally it was. Oh, you're serious? I was, I was a guy that people would come up to and say, everybody can dance, let me show you. And then after about a half an hour of just shaking their heads, they would walk away and say, you're right, you can't dance, you know? And, and, I, and, I, and I knew this going in and I tried to, you know, explain this, but this time, uh, my wife was not taking no for an answer, and we signed up for these lessons with three other couples, which made life even worse because I was now you've got eight people that you're the worst person, you know, and the instructor, even though you're up, you're signed up for a one hour lesson is spending 50 minutes with me and 10 minutes with the rest of the group because I can't even get the basics down. And when I realized that this was not going to go away, I, um, I, I took the... <laughs> Very, very uh, in, in secret, I signed up for lessons, personal lessons with the same instructor in the studio and snuck out to get these personal lessons before I would go to the group lessons so I wouldn't look so stupid. And I still looked stupid, but not as stupid as I was looking you know, previously. And I did that for about three months before my wife caught on that something was going on. And, was it that she caught you leaving and coming back from the dance lessons, or she sees such an no. improvement that she, she just no. knew. something more simple than that. We, uh, she, she, um, we were in the studio one time, and she looked at the schedule, the the, the dance instructor schedule, and she saw my name down <laughs> in, in the previous too, week. Too many Tonys <laughs> that week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and then so I was so I was caught. I was busted, but um, you know I, I think after about, you know, three or four years and a lot of, a lot, a lot of practice. Yeah. 
I actually got to the point where we're comfortable and it's something we do, we continue to do. We, we, we dance at least, even during COVID, we're, we're dancing at least two or three times a week. We have a little, little studio downstairs. We built a, a floor downstairs with a mirror and we actually uh, go down and dance down there. And, um, and, I, and I actually enjoy it now that I have, I'm, I'm reasonably competent. I, I enjoy it. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm to the point, I'm, I'm, I'm nowhere, nowhere near this, you know, any, we don't compete or anything like that. My goal was to be unnoticed on the floor. I'm very happy with people noticing my wife. And as long as I don't fall, they won't notice me, you know, and, and that's my goal and I've achieved my goals. So, so I'm good with well, that. If we, can, if we can parlay this podcast, maybe we can get you um, onto Dancing with the Stars or something. And uh, <laughs> it. The intended result um, <laughs> will not be what happens. You will be famous. We're, we're running out of time, but I, I sure. want to ask a big question um, on, the, uh, on the way out. You've accomplished a lot. You know, we're going to change Dancing with the Stars to Dancing with the Deans because of you. Like, that's, that's a given. <laughs> but what can we expect from you other than dancing and other than cycling? Like, what, is, um, what should the world be looking for from Tony DeLeo and SHRS at Pittsburgh? I think the, the, you know, you always like to tackle a crisis and a problem uh, and, 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 and above all, you'd like to solve a crisis and a problem. I think right now the crisis in healthcare and, and particularly the crisis in the field that I belong to, which is physical therapy, uh, is that we have raised the cost of education to an unconscionable level. And, and when I say we, I'm including the University of Pittsburgh. We were part of this. Uh, you know, the, the, from, the not, from the early 2000s until 2015, we just, you know, continually raised the cost, uh, you know, two to three percent a year to a point where, you know, when you, you accumulate that across time, you've, you've, we've, we've become the most, one of the more expensive schools in the country, and we're a state institution. So we need to write that. And I think this is, we're just a symptom, our school of, of, of what's happened across the country in many, many schools. And in fact, now uh, for the past two or three years, this has been written about as a crisis in, in the physical therapy education. And it transforms, it transfers to all the other professions too, which, you know, we have 13 professions in SHRS and, you know, all but one of them are, are overpriced right now. Um, we need to bring that, the, the price down. Now, how do you bring the price down? You bring the price down, you can you can cut your tuition. That's the easiest way to bring it down, but your but but what does that do to your budget? And can you maintain the excellence that you've built over over the years with the brand? And the answer is no. So the only other way of doing it is to expand your enrollment, maintain the excellence in the expanded enrollment, and then with the with, use that tuition excess to bring right. to again bring the either tuition discount or bring the cost the the uh, the sticker price down. And that's what we're doing. And uh, I think, you know, we had a five-year plan that we started uh, two years ago, and I think we're on track. You know, we will be, you know, within five years, we, we will, we, 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 we've already reduced our cost by 30% in, in um, our tuition costs. Congratulations, that's incredible. And, um, and we will bring it down another 30% easily in the next um, uh, three years. And then, you know, we, we, we will, we'll have to, more importantly, we'll have developed a model that will allow us to have a lot of flexibility with regard to pricing ourselves. And 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 um, and you know, I'd like to get to the point where uh, you know we can we can be offering 
you know, one to $2 million in scholarships to students to come to our school, largely based again on this expanded enrollment and the increased money that we can bring in in that regard. So for us to go from one of the most expensive schools to actually one of the most affordable schools hmm. um, would be the mark I'd like to leave. And, uh, I, and, and honestly, I, I fully believe that's, that's an achievable goal. And, and, my, and the, that, that can be obtained within the rest of my tenure at, uh, at Pitt. I know uh, it's the, the customary thing to say, but I mean this, if there's anybody that could do it, um, I would bet on you. And so um, I wish you the best of luck of changing, uh, changing the price of education within your control and, and making that the masthead. That's no small feat, but I think you got this one. Yeah, I, I, I really, I'm confident. I'm very confident. Uh, yeah. And I'm saying this in the middle of a COVID crisis. I, I mean, <laughs> where our institution is, is reeling with regard to what it's had to spend, but I still believe that this is, uh, this is, very, this is very doable and I think we're, we're on track. All right, we'll, we'll bring you back in a year or two and we'll, uh, yeah. we'll look at all the results. And now that it's, now that it's out in the wild, um, we can yeah. track it with you. Yep. Excellent. Yeah, we're excited, very excited about it. Tony, thank you for being the first guest on The Most Interesting People in Higher Ed. We started at a very high level of interest um, and hopefully we can find some more interesting people out there. But I, I, I really, really appreciate your time and um, I continue to be impressed with your achievements, the university's achievements, SHRS's achievements. And so um, thank you personally. Thank you from Noodle. And I hope you have a great week. Yeah. Thanks, Lee. Appreciate your time. And that's our show. Thank you for listening to the most interesting people in higher education. This listening experience is brought to you by Noodle, the network of online higher education programs. Our mission is to lower the cost of higher ed through a pursuit of excellence in online learning. And make sure to subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. See you next time.